You're listening to the Be a Better Lawyer podcast with Dina Cataldo, episode 203. So how do high achieving lawyers break through generations of being taught that we have to grind ourselves into the ground to get results for clients, build a successful business and create a life we love? While law schools are busy teaching the rule of law, they're slacking on teaching us how to be a better human to create for ourselves the success we thought we'd achieve after law school. This podcast bridges the gap between law school and life. Hello, how are you? Okay, before I start today's episode, I want to give you a piece of advice that has helped me make changes faster in my own life, and I know it can benefit you too. It's allowed me to listen harder to mentors and allow myself to be coachable even when my brain wanted to shut down while being coached. Whenever I hear advice, a teaching, coaching, whatever it is, I ask myself, how might this apply to me? No matter who was speaking or what situation they might be talking about, I ask myself, how can I apply this to my problem? I offer this to you because what I used to do and what I notice some of you doing is discarding teachings that can impact you because they don't exactly match up to what you think you need to work on. You are holding yourself back if you do this. And if you're looking for your exact situation, you will never find it. No one has ever been in your exact same situation in the exact time that you are in it. Actively seek the change you're looking for by listening to everything you hear on this podcast through the filter of how can I apply this to my life? How can I apply this to my problem? How might this apply to me? And you are going to find that you are going to reap so many rewards doing that. All right, let's dig into unraveling your stories. I want you to think of your life as if you are in a car. The car represents all of your actions, what direction you're going, how fast you're going, whether you're driving on the sidewalk or on the street. And you are either in the driver's seat, consciously making the decisions about which direction you want to go and how fast you're going, or you are in the passenger seat, letting your subconscious make all of the decisions. A lot of us think that we are consciously in the driver's seat, but what is actually happening is that the subconscious is driving the car. The subconscious stores all our beliefs and it makes decisions and takes actions based on those beliefs. Our beliefs are our stories about who we are and what our identity is. Stories are things like, I'm good at math. I'm bad at math. I'm a great attorney. I'm a horrible attorney. It's easy to make friends. It's hard to make friends. I don't know how. I can figure anything out. My business is working. My business is not working. These stories tell the subconscious where to drive the car, how fast they should be going, what direction they should be going. And our stories that we have about our life and about what we are capable of determines our quality of the experiences we have in our life. They determine whether we take action or not, or the kind of action that will create the result that we're looking for. The problem is most of us can't see our stories for what they are, stories that can be changed. Most people don't do the work to unravel the stories they have about their life and what they're capable of and stay stuck in the passenger seat. And here's the thing is I hear from some of you like, hey, yeah, I totally see it's a story, but you don't. 
You really don't. You really believe your story with your whole heart and you don't see a way out. And so I'm talking to you if you are like, yes, I know, I see my story, but no, if you're still taking the same actions and you're not seeing a different result, you are still wholeheartedly believing your story. And even when you might see a way to start taking the driver's seat, it's like offered to you, it feels really scary to take that wheel because we're not used to doing it if we've never done it before. If we're just used to letting the the subconscious drive us around, it's kind of scary when we're like, okay, suddenly now I'm in control of this car and I'm responsible for where it's going. The prospect of changing who we are at a fundamental level and the stories that make up who we are at a fundamental level is terrifying. What people do is they feel the terror in their body and they make that mean that it's a terrible idea to do anything differently. They make it another piece of evidence to support their story that they can't change or they shouldn't change, that they can't do what they want to do or they shouldn't do what they want to do. I was prosecuting a man for burglary one time, and this is just the perfect example of what we do all the time to create a story, but it's also a great example of what we can do to unravel our stories, right? The ones we've believed a long time in our core. So in this case, an older couple couple went out to grab an ice cream at McDonald's, and while they were out, the man I was prosecuting broke into their home, stole some items, then left. The couple got home and reported the incident. So there was like comical evidence that led the police to this guy. In my closing argument, I argued that each piece of evidence was a breadcrumb, leading them to one conclusion, that this man broke into the couple's home and took their items. He's seen coming out of their home in a t-shirt with words on it. I forget what the words are, but it was pretty distinctive. He's seen riding away from the home and down the block on a pink bicycle. Then he's heard, but not seen, breaking into a laundry room nearby, and then he's seen coming out of it. And inside the laundry room was a backpack stuffed behind the washer that had items from the couple's home. The man was seen changing his shirt nearby, then police found him hiding in a bush. Pretty compelling, right? To add on to this, the man was well known in the town partly because of the pink bicycle he rode. So I built the story of this closing argument piece by piece, showing the jury the evidence. Our brains do the same thing. It's They're looking for evidence to support whatever argument, whatever belief we have about our circumstances. When we're building our stories about what we're capable of or what we're not capable of, we collect a lot of breadcrumbs. We build a case detailing why we can't build a business, why we can't manage our time, why we can't change who we are. Our brain has spent a lot of time looking for breadcrumbs that lead us to one conclusion. We can't or we shouldn't. What I do with my clients is help them unravel their stories so they can open themselves up to the potential that they can, okay? And when you open yourself up to the potential that you can, then you can make a decision based on what you want. This is a painstaking process that we work on together each week. And most people do not do this work because they are committed to their story. It's too hard for them to take the leap and consider that maybe, just maybe their story isn't true. 
let's take a look at what the defense argument could have looked like in my case. They didn't have much evidence and they lost, but they could have done this. So first degree burglary requires that a person go inside a residential dwelling with the intent to commit a felony. In this case, it was theft. Let's look at each breadcrumb set forth. This is what I would have said. The prosecution has a witness that says they saw my client leaving the home, but no one says they saw him inside the home. Burglary requires that he's inside. There's no fingerprints. We don't know what happened. We just don't know. There's lots of things that we don't know. There's a lot of things that could have happened that the prosecution can't disprove. They can't prove someone else wasn't in the home. They can't prove that the door wasn't open and someone else didn't take the property out of the house first. And the defendant didn't just find it could have just found the items discarded. Laughable argument, right? Maybe, but it may give someone just one person reasonable doubt to acquit. Okay, and this is interesting as I'm reading this, um, I write these out, but what I hear as I'm reading this is, look, we have a case, sometimes we have a really good case that is for whatever we want to do, but then our brain comes in and it wants to create confusion, right? Have you ever been in a case where the opposing counsel just wants to create confusion? Like they don't actually have any real evidence, but it wants the brain to be confused. And if you can confuse a jury, then you can get an acquittal. So Something to keep in mind when you feel confused, your brain is trying to keep you from taking action. All right, so what are some of the other breadcrumbs here? So if I were the defense, I would just keep picking at the breadcrumbs I set forth. We heard evidence that my client rode a pink bike around town. We don't have fingerprints. We don't have pictures of this bike. If we don't have this, what else don't we have? We heard evidence that a witness heard someone break into the locked laundry room and saw my client come out. How reliable is that testimony? She didn't seem like she wanted to be here or that she wanted to participate in this trial. The prosecution wants you to believe that makes her testimony more reliable because she doesn't have a bias. I would argue that it makes it less reliable because she doesn't care how much detail she gives or whether her identification is accurate. Do you see what I'm getting at here? We have to treat our beliefs the same way we would treat an argument by opposing counsel. There's two sides to the evidence, and this is how we start unraveling stories so that we can make decisions from true evidence, both sides of the story. So when we do this, our brain opens up. We start seeing evidence that was always there that we just couldn't see because we were so attached to the story that we had made up in our mind, the case that we had built in our mind. We can't even see the other side of the story. As attorneys, our job is to slow down and deconstruct each argument piece by piece. If you get a brief and it has multiple arguments, you break them down one by one. But we don't do this with our brains. We don't do this with our decision-making process in real life, right? But this is what I help my clients do. I help them slow down their brains and deconstruct the arguments that they are making against themselves. Us lawyers are also very rational. Well, most of us. We want to see every inch of a problem before we take action. And sometimes I'll talk to lawyers and they tell me they did a pro-con list for their decisions. Okay, look, there is nothing wrong with a pro-con list. The problem is they want to abdicate their decision making to a pro-con list instead of making a powerful decision using wisdom. I recently read Bob Iger's book, The Right of a Lifetime. I'm going to link to it in the show notes because it was really good. I highly recommend it. He was the CEO of Disney after Michael Eisner left. Bob Iger had the unenviable task of trying to reestablish a relationship with Steve Jobs after Eisner and Jobs had it out over their Pixar animation deal. 
Iger did it, though, despite everyone believing he couldn't do it. Then one day, he builds up the courage to bring up the idea of Disney buying Pixar from Jobs. Steve immediately puts up a pro-con list on the giant whiteboard in his office, right? There's a ton of cons he lists, including things like Disney culture will destroy Pixar. Fixing Disney animation is going to take too long and burn out the leaders in Pixar. There's too much ill will and the healing will take years. Wall Street will hate it. Disney's board is never going to let you do it. And this one was my favorite. Pixar will reject Disney as an owner as a body rejects a donated organ. It's very dramatic. But this was what was really cool about this, right? The... Pros included a much shorter list, one that was buying Pixar would save Disney and Pixar creators would have a larger canvas to paint on for their creations. They have theme parks, all kinds of amazing things that they could do with their characters once they started working within Disney. And Iger was crushed when he saw the pro list was so tiny versus the much larger con list. And he told Jobs, oh, well, it was like a good idea, but I just can't see how we can do it based on this list. And this is what Steve Jobs said. He said, a few solid pros are more powerful than dozens of cons. I want you to remember that when we go through this next exercise. Your brain may come up with a zillion reasons why something won't work, but a few solid reasons why it will work can be much more powerful. And that is why you cannot abdicate your decision-making to a pro-con list. You cannot abdicate your position driving the car to your subconscious, letting it just pick a story and run with it because it has some evidence. What you've got to do is understand how your brain works and understand that it lies to you. And what Bob Iger did next was discuss what it might look like if buying Pixar could work. Listen to that. He didn't have a 100% belief that Disney could buy Pixar. In fact, he believed that it was probably going to be amazingly difficult to convince the board, amazingly difficult to get Steve Jobs on board and get all of the creators on board. And keep this in mind, Bob Iger was brand new. So he was staking his reputation on this deal, a multi-billion dollar deal, because he thought that this was the right thing to do. Okay, so he started building a case, just looking at it, exploring a case, looking for evidence that it could work. That required meetings and communicating with people at Pixar, looking at the books, understanding the creative processes within Pixar versus Disney. He brought up what he learned with with his team, and his team was decidedly negatively biased, saying the deal would be too costly, that it was too risky to work, that it would never work because of the personalities. He was told that the numbers didn't make sense. He was told he was too new of a CEO to make a deal like this. Michael Eisner even called him up and told him not to do it. And later on, Michael Eisner apologized. But he didn't believe, Bob Iger didn't believe everyone's thoughts or fears. He considered them. Then he made a decision on the information and instincts that he had about the deal and what it would do for the parties involved. He was driving the car. He was not letting the stories drive the car. And just to kind of give you a little 
thumbnail sketch of what happened. Disney paid $7.4 billion for Pixar. That's billion with a B as in boy. And Iger looks back at this as the best deal Disney ever made. After the acquisition, Disney made $11.5 billion at the end of 2021. And that's not even counting the money that was brought in in a prior deal with Pixar. I say all of this so that you can use any list simply like a journaling exercise. So if you've done a pro-con list, use it as a journaling exercise to see some of your thoughts like we talked about in the last episode. And if you want to go after something, if you want to build your practice, don't be discouraged because your brain tells you there's more cons than pros. Build a case that it's possible. And you can use this way of thinking for anything you want to accomplish. But what I'm going to do in this episode is talk about it in the context of building your practice or a new business, since a lot of lawyers reach out to me for this. So before I do, I want to talk to you about negativity bias because it influences the stories we have. If we have awareness of what negativity bias is, we can see how it shows up in our brain daily. Our brain biases our perceptions to be pessimistic. Our brain wants to show us all the reasons it's not working or it won't work. And it collects evidence which accumulates more thoughts in favor of the negativity bias that it's not working. It's constantly looking for evidence to place it in the cons list. It's the equivalent of constantly looking for danger and things to go wrong, which makes sense because it's there to protect us. So that's why a lot of people interpret fear or confusion as a sign that they shouldn't do something. They make fear or any negative emotion mean that it's their intuition telling them that it's a bad idea. This is not true. It's a sign that there is work to be done to manage your emotions, unravel the stories, and to make sure that your subconscious is not driving the car. Unraveling our stories about what our thoughts and feelings means requires that we see all our thoughts, that it's not working, and start looking for evidence that it's working. This is important. We are not sugarcoating things. We're training our brain to see the other side of the argument. If you see the other side of the argument, then your brain can have all the information to start making more powerful decisions, to make decisions that are based in wisdom rather than just letting our emotions drive the car, letting our subconscious steer. You get to see both sides of the case, and then you get to decide if you want to do the work. And most people stop at feeling uncomfortable about changing their lives, and they don't look for how change might be closer than they think. But understand it's a choice. You're choosing not to do the work and remain where you are, and that is okay. If you want to do this work, then stay with me. Our beliefs are our interpretations of the world and our thoughts that we have thought over and over again until they feel true. Our thoughts can be lightning fast and we might not even see them if we're if we're looking for them. I know I do this sometimes, like I don't even see the thoughts and then I realize, oh, I have been letting my subconscious drive my car. So for example, we see a tree, then our brain has an instantaneous judgment about whether the tree is pretty, ugly, dying, young, tall, short, big, small, etc. That's how fast our brain works. Then we believe our judgments. Of course it's small compared to what? Of course the tree is ugly compared to what? Of course it's young compared to what? How do you know it's small, ugly, or young? We don't question any of our judgments about it because we simply think our thoughts are true. We don't even question how vague they are, right? We don't question the vagueness of our thoughts. 
This is no different than how we judge ourselves and how we think about ourselves. Our thoughts are instantaneous and we don't question them. When my clients slow down their brains, they can see that they're having thoughts and then they begin unraveling the stories holding them back. And that's what makes it possible for them to expand their practices, reduce their stress levels, and start enjoying their law practice again. If we want to grow in our life in any way, we've got to do this work of unraveling the stories because what we think about our life and our capabilities will be our limit. We can't change ourselves beyond what we believe is true. The story we have is a psychological barrier to change. And one great example of unraveling a story is Roger Bannister. He's the first man to break the four-minute mile record. Instead of believing the story that most people believed, that it was impossible to break the four-minute mile, he saw possibility and studied what might help him break the record. It wasn't an accident that he broke it. He was intentional in his focus so that he could break it even in less than ideal weather conditions the day of the race. And after he broke the record, the psychological barrier to the four-minute mile was broken for so many other people, and many, many other runners have run faster than him since. He had to question the past. When he was doing this work of unraveling that story that so many runners had, he had to question the beliefs of the larger running community. He had to question some of the assumptions he made about the science and allow him to do the research. He had to move from the belief that it's not possible to it's possible to even it's probably possible, to even I can do it. And then finally, after he did it, he saw that I did it. And other people could say, ah, he did it. I can do it too. This was not a straight line. And we don't usually go straight from it's impossible to I can do it. It's too big a leap for our brains. It's this huge transformation in our fundamental belief about ourselves and our capacity. Negativity bias weighs our brain down in favor of it's impossible. We've got to work through unraveling the breadcrumbs that our brain has accumulated to prove to us each story we have along the way. Now, let's look at a belief a lot of us have when it comes to building our business. It's not working, right? I hear so many people say this. I have said this at one point, right? Like I have to look at this and make sure my brain is not on autopilot, right? Because it just wants to go there. We have negativity bias. It's gonna favor that kind of a thought. You may have this belief about anything in your life, but we're gonna talk about it in the context of building a business. Let's say it's the 21st of the month and you have not hit your revenue goal yet. Is your default story that your business is working or that it's not working? This will determine how you show up the rest of the month. If you think it's not working, you are going to feel deflated, disappointed, maybe worried. And when you feel that way, you are less likely to market your business so that you can hit your goal. You're more likely to think that because it's the end of the month, that means you don't have much of a chance to hit your goal. So you might say to yourself, there's no point. I'll rest and start fresh next month. That sounds like a pretty thought, right? Maybe reasonable. But when we're inconsistent in how we show up, it takes longer to grow a business because we're only marketing and putting energy into building it two thirds of the month instead of the whole month. You're losing out on the compound interest, the compound impact that showing up for your business will have. Now, if you think that it is working, you get a different result. 
This is not a default thought for most people. They've got to practice it because most people are not aware of negative negativity bias or what thoughts are creating their results, what subconscious beliefs are driving the car. And this is why I stress celebrating our successes because it reminds our brain of all the things that are working and helps our brain become more resourceful when it comes to seeing our thoughts clearly. It's like lifting some of the fog off of our brain when it comes to our goals. So here's the same scenario with a different thought. It's the 21st of the month and you haven't hit your revenue goal yet. You notice that you're thinking it's not working and you get to work unraveling this story. All the breadcrumbs seem to point to it really not working. It's towards the end of the month. You haven't hit your goal. You feel disappointed. Your brain tells you to just let it go. It's okay. You can start fresh the next month. So let's deconstruct these one by one. It's the 21st. So what? Have you ever had a consult book in the last week of a month? How many clients have you signed in one week before? Where do your clients come from? How much revenue did you create this month versus last year in the same month? List all the ways that revenue and consults has come to your business in the past. Referrals, social media offers, webinars, networking events. Just because it's the 21st doesn't mean that it is evidence that it's not working. It's evidence that you have seven more days in the month is the other way to look at this. I haven't hit my revenue goal. So what? You can make that thought mean that you're not going to hit your revenue goal, or you can look at all the ways you can hit your revenue goal. What might be possible? How might you hit your revenue goal? Networking event? Webinar? email to your list, social media posts, instead of using this thought as support for the story, why it's not working, unravel the story and get to work looking at it from the perspective of it is working. When you do that, you can take better action. Let's look at how you might be feeling. I feel deflated or disappointed. So what? Your feelings don't mean anything about your ability to hit your revenue goal. But what most of us do is make those feelings mean that it's not working. We make it mean that something has gone wrong. Nothing has gone wrong. You're just not managing your brain to help you hit your revenue goal. You're letting your subconscious run the car, drive the car off the road. Now let's look at another one. Your brain says, okay, well, I'll just start fresh next month, right? Feels like a really pretty thought. So what, right? Why would you need to be fresh next month? What does that even mean? The only reason your brain wants to stop you now is because you're afraid of feeling failure. It feels horrible, but wouldn't you rather give it your all and be disappointed with the result than not go all out and try to hit your goal? If you chose giving it your all, good, because that means that even if you don't hit your goal this month, you can analyze what happened and learn from it. If you don't try, you don't have anything to learn from. There's no lessons. There's no takeaways. We need to have lessons if we're going to grow. Every time someone tells me that they're afraid of failure, I tell them, we're going to learn how to deal with failure. We're going to learn 
how to learn lessons every time we think we have failed because that is what creates the compound impact in your business. That is what creates the ability to grow, to expand. If you don't have failures, you will not be able to expand. And this took me a long time to learn because failures felt so horrible in my body. I thought that, you know, it was just, it meant I was bad. It meant that this was wrong, that I was doing something wrong. No, it's a natural part of any type of growth we want to make. We've got to learn how to handle our emotions so that our subconscious is not driving the car. Okay, now ask yourself all the evidence, look for it all, that it is working. Remind yourself of all the consults you had or the conversations you had or the money you did take in this month. Remind yourself of the money you took in prior months. Remind yourself of all the unexpected ways clients come to you. I had a client who's been making really good money in her practice, but in the last week of one month this year, she persistently believed that it wasn't working. And she felt horrible and it put her into a spin where she wasn't billing as many hours and she wasn't emailing her list to remind them that she's taking referrals um, and that she's doing consults via Zoom. And when we coached on it that week, she realized what she was doing. And then the next, I think it was the next week she came back and she ran the numbers and she said, oh my gosh, like after our call, I got back on the horse and I got more revenue than I thought. I received more that I didn't even see coming because she wasn't allowing her brain to look at the numbers. She was just letting the subconscious drive the car. And if she had continued to let the subconscious drive the car with the thought it's not working, she wouldn't have billed the hours that were going to help her make her goal. She wouldn't have sent out the email that was going to allow her to build that compound impact on her business so that her clients knew she was taking referrals. So when we get in our brain into a space where we believe something closer to it's working, then it's not working, we feel a little bit better, right? <laughs> then we can take better action towards our goal. And if you feel better about your situation, you're more likely to make offers on social media, network, send out an email for referrals, do the billables you already have lined up to raise your revenue, propose work to current clients. I mean, look, like we act better when we are acting from the intention. When we are driving the car in the direction we want it to go, we take better action. And so when you're unraveling these stories that your subconscious has been holding on to and that you might be holding on to right now, you're aware of it and you're like, "Well, I just don't know where to go," right? You're stuck in confusion whatever it is. Recognize that when you start unraveling your stories, your brain becomes more resourceful so you're not spinning out, but this takes practice and you've got to focus on it and you've got to do this consistently. So notice that we're just talking about two thoughts right now. It's not working versus it's working. And most people want to just, let's just ditch the thought it's not working because it feels awful to think that and I'm going to try to push this new thought it's working onto my brain. I want you to resist the urge to do that because that's not helpful because you're you're not able to believe it's working if you're coming from it's not working. And so if you were my client and I was working with you, we would start with a bridge thought and I'm going to talk to you about that in a second. Unraveling your stories to get from it's not working to it's working is a really tall order most of the time. So we want to work with all the colors of the rainbow between those two thoughts. And there's a spectrum here. What I want you to do here is pick a thought from the spectrum I'm going to provide to you that feels like it could be true to you. 
it feels really easy to believe. And let me be clear, pick a thought other than it's not working. Pretty much any thought is better. But what I want you to do is notice when a thought feels true to you. And what I mean by is this, is if you feel anxious, it probably doesn't feel true in your body, (laughs) okay? If it feels solid, if you feel grounded, if it feels true, then your brain can probably believe it or get on board with it, okay? So this is the the spectrum. It's not working. Don't pick this one. (laughs) I want to believe that it might work. I want to believe that it's working. I think I believe that it could work. It's possible that it's working. I think it could be working. I think it's working. It's working. You see what I'm saying there? There's a spectrum. And so when you're going through each of those thoughts, maybe the one you pick is, I want to believe that it might work. Or I think I think I believe that it could work. Maybe you're picking something like that. Like, it's possible that this could work. I want you to really practice that thought, especially like if you're in a goal right now where you're thinking the thought, it's not working. Practice this new thought, the one that feels true in your body that you can connect with and think about your goal in relationship to it, okay? When you feel grounded in your body and you're thinking about your goal, start asking yourself the questions that we went through. Start like really looking at it in the light most favorable to that thought. So if you're thinking it's not working and then you pick a thought like, it's possible that it's working, it's, I think it could work, then I want you to start looking at your challenge, your goal in the light most favorable to that thought. Just like Bob Iger did when he was fashioning or deciding whether or not he could make a deal with Pixar. He had to actually look at it as if it was going to happen so that he could decide what steps he needed to take next. He had to act as if, right? So he could gather the information. He had to create evidence. So be that um, defense attorney for yourself and start looking at it from the the idea that, yeah, oh, it might be working. And this is how you start the process of unraveling your stories. Notice your thoughts about your goal, question them, counter them with the other facts that you may not have been looking for. Learning to change requires consistency and repetition. This is not about perfection. It is about paying attention Be present in your life, moment to moment. When you see your brain wanting perfection, pause. Allow yourself to feel uncomfortable. Remind yourself that you can refocus your attention, then practice this consistently. This practice is perfect for the journaling practice we talked about in last week's episode, and anyone can do this work. The only reason someone doesn't do this work is if they believe everything their brain is telling them. Our brain always wants to take the same path it took yesterday. It wants to repeat the easy and well-traveled path. If you want a new path, book a call with me. All you have to lose are all your old stories about yourself and what is possible. And you can book a call with me at dinacataldo.com forward slash strategy session. Repetition and consistency, my friend. I do this work on myself and my goals all the time. It has meant the world to me. It has changed everything. We don't do it once and then we're quote unquote fixed. 
It's consistency that creates the compound results we want to see for our goals, our business, whatever it is that we want in our life. All right, my friend, I hope you have a wonderful week. I will talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you.